Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Monica Heisey came into my life this year via her novel, Really Good Actually, uh, and that was released in January. And then when I learned more about her, I was like, I am obsessed with this girl. Uh, she is extremely cool. She's from Canada. She's a writer, screenwriter, and comedian. She's done stand-up. She wrote for Shit's Creek. She wrote for Working Moms, which I know lots of people really like and have watched here in Ireland. And then she also worked on a television program called Smothered, uh, which she co-created and wrote and recently uh, came out on Sky or Now TV, depending on what you're having yourself I loved Smothered I loved Really Good Actually and I love Monica Heisey I was so delighted to have the chance to catch up with her recently we had a good long chat about her work about the process and about what more we can expect to hear from her so I hope you enjoy this extended interview Monica, thank you so much for giving me your time. I know I was just saying to you before we started that uh, it's the 15th of December and my brain is finished with this year. Like it's just like barely cooperating. So the fact that you're still agreeing to do things like this, I think is very generous. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Not at all. Um, I s said to you that, you know, you've had a big year. I was thinking of people who I'd like to talk to about the year that they've had. And you immediately came to mind because your book, Really Good Actually, came out in January. And then the series that you worked on has smothered or that you co-created and wrote smothered um, has just gone live. I suppose I don't even know what the right terminology for TV is anymore, um, but it's streaming on Sky and now TV here in Ireland. Um, so a big thing in January and a big thing in December how do you feel at this stage of the year <laughs> um I have had a really bad year actually um not professionally yeah um, but personally it's been it's been terrible mm. and it's been so interesting um to realize how how what people see of your life from mm. the outside and how limited uh, anyone's ability to understand each other is yeah um, through through like you know Instagram or even just like acquaintances you see at parties and stuff you know people have been like oh congrats on your year and it, it's genuinely been the worst year of my life um so it's been it's been really interesting trying to find a way to be joyful and excited about 
you know, all my stupid dreams came true, yeah. which is great. Um, and then personally, it's just been a tire fire. So it's, it's been a real, I feel like I've been saying to friends, like, I really learned a lot in 2023 and I would maybe like to learn less. Mm-hmm. Next maybe fewer lessons would be fine. <laughs> I truly could not relate more. Um, I have had a very similar year. Um, I like literally have been going around quoting Dickens and being like, it's the best of times and the worst of times because <laughs> genuinely everything has either been really great or really awful. Like there has been no middle ground. And I do oh, think it's kind dirty. of hard to, yeah, kind of hard to communicate that with people as well. Like when people ask you, actually your book title comes to mind often when people ask how you are and you and they're like, you're doing so well. And you're kind of like, yeah. And you're like, how much do I tell you? Like, yeah. how do I navigate this? Yeah, it's like how relevant is it to this person who's just trying to be nice about <laughs> some professional thing that they saw? Yeah, be like actually this, this, and this. It's like that's not necessarily their business or certainly their problem or information they even mm-hmm. want. Um, I, yeah, I actually think that's one of the biggest lessons I learned this year is that I don't have to tell everybody ev- everything. I'm working on that myself. Mm. It's a big lesson that the narrator of the novel learns mm-hmm. uh, very like sort of too late. And I'm trying to kind of remember that the reason I wrote that was because I know that. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. But knowing something and doing something are often two very different things. Yeah, very much so. Well, for people who aren't familiar with you, um, obviously you have a lovely Canadian accent, um, but you are now based in London. Tell us a little bit about kind of, you know, you were born in Toronto. How did, how did you kind of make your way from Toronto to London? Um, I did a semester in the UK during my undergrad and really loved it. I, I was an English major and I'm, I'm particularly interested in early modern literature, uh, English early modern literature. And, um, I decided, I really loved my semester and decided to come back mm-hmm. to do a master's degree. Um, at the, it was like half at the globe and half at King's College London. Cool. Um, it was so, it was so, I just figured like, it's not going, that subject is not going to get me, open a million professional doors. It's it's purely just for like love of the subject. So I mm-hmm. might as well go to the source, you know, like yeah. the, the resources that, um, that the, the various British universities and like the British library have mm-hmm. um, in terms of stuff from that period is so amazing. So I came over for that and then started, my program was really small and to meet people I started, I had performed comedy like in high school and university and stuff. And I started doing it again to meet people basically. And was so like, just immediately fell in love with the British comedy scene. Like the live scene was so, it was really welcoming as as a very new and green performer. There were like a lot of opportunities to practice that that didn't involve like bankrupting yourself to get across town to get to the gig. They would share the door with you so you weren't losing money. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really special time. I, I came over in 2010 and it was a really special time to be here. And I like last minute filled in for a friend of a friend who dropped out of a fringe show. And then that was kind of it. I was just here forever. I have a long thought that I am hilarious. Um, but <laughs> but that I just would never, I mean, I, I think I'm reasonably funny. I don't actually think I'm professional level hilarious, but I've always thought it's like the ballsiest thing to get up on stage and do stand-up comedy. Like, how do you even get the, the courage to do that? 
oh, there has to be something broken inside you compelling okay. you to cool. do it. Absolutely. It. <laughs> I actually think anyone could do it. The thing is that to get over the part where it's very stressful and unpleasant, there does need to be a sort of compulsive aspect mm. to it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know anyone. I think we maybe genuinely don't know anyone who was like a cool kid in school who now is a comedian. There's there's like people are working through some stuff up there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think it's just I've been to a couple of comedy gigs. Like I find comedy gigs kind of stressful because um, due to childhood trauma, I just absorb everyone else's feelings. So I'm like really worried. You'd be an amazing stand-up. <laughs> I'm really worried for the person on the stage. I'm also worried about everyone in the audience. Like if the vibe isn't there, if it doesn't go well, I feel it so intensely that like it almost puts me off it completely. But then there's no greater joy than when it when it clicks and when it's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, that's the, I guess the magic of the live gigs is that like you can really create a very special feeling kind of this is only happening for us tonight energy, even if it's, I mean, really great comedians can do it with material they've been doing for years and still make it feel intimate and personal. And like, it's just something for you. Mm. Um, it's really special. And so was it through the comedy then that you started writing for TV? Yeah, I guess I, I had always, in addition to performing comedy, written little like comedy pieces. Mm. Um, and so when I moved, I was writing for a local blog, back when local blogs could function. Yeah. I was writing for a local blog in Toronto during my undergrad. And when I moved over to the UK, I wanted to keep doing it because it was like a, a fairly good income source to me at the time. Mm. But I needed to do something that I could do that wasn't local. So I started doing a bad advice column. Love it. Um, and that turned into my first book, which was an essay collection called I Can't Believe It's Not Better. Um, Such a good title. <laughs> thank you. And um, and I wrote that when I was like 25. Mm. Um, and when I was promoting that, I met some some women who were um, I was doing like a comedy show with them. They were they were interviewing me and then doing improv. And after the show, they were like, "Do you have any sketch samples? We're putting together a sketch comedy show." And I was like, "Sure." Um, and they turned out to be, um, the women from Baroness on sketch show, which was my first ever TV gig. And they taught me so much about writing for TV, being in a writer's room, sketch comedy, all kinds of writing. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also my first job in narrative TV for Schitt's Creek came from someone gave Dan Levy a copy of the book. So everything kind of came from the book. That's so cool. And also, I love how casually you were like, someone gave Dan Levy a copy of the book. Like, that's just a casual thing that would happen. <laughs> <laughs> People in Ireland love Shit's Creek. Like, during the pandemic, I feel like there was few shows that were discussed as much as Shit's Creek. Like, people are obsessed. My friend Emer, like, literally flew to New York. I'm going to get all the details wrong here, but, like, flew for, like, a charity uh, script read or something all of that terminology is wrong like people love it and what was it like working on that I was just um so overwhelmed I mean when I started it was season three so it hadn't quite become like the global yeah sensation and thank god because I think that would have been it was intimidating enough as it was yeah. to be working like not just my comedy heroes but like the the country's comedy heroes you know like mm -hmm. Eugene and Catherine are these legends yeah uh, in comedy and um you know, I was just trying to like 
learn and not make any any like glaring errors mm -hmm. um, and I did season three and four and again learned so much um had a really good time yeah I've always thought because sometimes I I you hear about people who kind of accidentally end up writing for TV and I'm like but how does that happen because like I feel like it's a very specific craft like I would have no idea I was approached by a TV company a couple of years ago and they were like you know if you have any ideas you know for a scripted show and I was like I just would not know even where to begin like what do you like even just the the kind of structure of a script and stuff so it must be a big learning experience Yeah, you kind of learn as you go. I mean, it's it's so interesting because I would probably that's the question I get asked the most is like, how do you get into TV? Yeah. And I I was saying to a friend, I feel like I wish there was an answer like, oh, you just call this guy. Yeah. Here's his <laughs> number. yeah. But everyone I know has a different way in. There's not really um, like a traditional path into TV. There are a couple like more common ones. Um, But everyone I know has kind of found a different way. And really, you just need to find a way to showcase your voice. And your voice is the most important thing. And then they can you can be taught structure and you can practice formatting. And you can develop your sense of narrative or like timing or like, you know, more technical stuff like figuring out how to button scenes and stuff that can come. with practice and it's more about finding somebody who's interested in taking you and teaching you that stuff. You, I guess you could also go to like a program, right? That, I think that's one way that people learn the the more technical stuff. And I will say I'm, I'm not a good example of the technical stuff still. Okay. That's encouraging. Um, yeah. I'm still Googling like how to do this <laughs> on final draft yeah. all the time. I know how to do, use like five of the functions. But look, I mean, it's working for you. So like, you know, sometimes you don't need to know everything about everything. Um, I'm interested to know what order Really Good Actually and Smothered came in, because I'm I, I'm aware of the, the fact that there's a long lead in to both, you know, making a television program and also publishing a book. And um, so which came first in your life? Um, smothered came first. Re really good actually was bubbling away as an idea for basically as so if, for those who don't know, it's a, a novel about a young woman kind of going deranged during her divorce at a, a, a very early age. And I didn't quite go as deranged, but I did get divorced at a young age and I wanted to write about it kind of as soon as it happened. But I also felt like you should wait so that you understand what's funny about this. Mm -hmm. I think the book I would have written in the like immediate year or two after my breakup would have been, you know, if people think this one is unhinged, I think that would have just been like beyond. Um, so I wanted to like take some time and do some therapy and process things. So it was bubbling away um, when I moved to the UK, but I hadn't started it yet. And then Smothered was, it, I don't think the first job, but like the second job that I got when I moved back over here with my visa. Um, I went back to Canada after grad school for a couple of years and then came back to the UK as kind of a soft place to land during my own breakup. Toronto is very small and I was very lucky to have another place that I could go where I had friends um, and a life. And um, so Smothered was initially like, uh, the company had been developing, Rough Cut, the company had been developing this idea with Sky for a really long time. It had been kicking around for like eight years or something. Right. Things really do languish in development hell. 
um, and had been resurrected, I think, by one of the execs at the network. And they they brought they wanted to bring in a new writer, and um, so I did a, a new draft of the pilot in twenty twenty, I think, mm. maybe like even late twenty nineteen. And then we got the pilot commission for like a non-broadcast pilot. So you film a pilot, but it's not ready to go yet. Yeah. Just like kind of a, a, a sample of what the show might be like for the network to see. We filmed that in in 2020. Um, and right, I guess while we were leading up to filming that, I was writing, I'd started writing the novel. I started writing the novel in the pandemic. They kind of were simultaneous projects that I was lucky enough that the windows kind of lined up. And so I wasn't having to work on both of them at the same time. It would yeah. be like whenever there was a break from Smothered, you know, you'd hand in a draft of something and then you'd have a couple weeks before anyone read it and got back to you mm. with their feedback. That's when I would get back into the novel. And then when the notes came back on Smothered, I would be in, in Smothered mode again. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't recommend filming a television show while preparing a novel for mm. publication, mm-hmm. I would say that was um, pr- a profoundly stressful uh, scheduling error on my part. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> filmed, we filmed it for seven weeks this time last year. And then the novel came out. Then there was Christmas and the novel came out a couple weeks later. So it was, um, that was a very hectic period. Yeah. Wow. I can only imagine. Um, Let's maybe talk about Really Good Actually first because um, chronologically for most people, I think they will have read the book probably before they saw Smothered. Um, As you said, it is the story of a woman, a young woman who has just separated from her husband and is going through the whole divorce process. Um, I, I like literally can't tell you how much I loved it I loved it and I know so many people who loved it as well in fact I was I was away with uh, some people for work this week and when I said to one of the girls I was with that I was interviewing you this week she was like oh my god I love that book she was like it really made me realize how much I needed to thank my friends she said because I had a completely deranged breakup she said where I went totally insane (laughs) she was like and I don't think I ever really took the time to thank my friends for going through that with me um and and I presume loads of people tell you that. That's so nice. Yeah, I. it's been a big year of um, girls in various stages of their breakups, like, coming up to me. There was a, a woman in a cafe came up to me at, like, the start of the year and was, like, <laughs> just leaned across the table and was, like, I just left my husband. And I was, like, oh, <laughs> I hope you've read the book. <laughs> She's just going around telling people. But, um, yeah, that's been, like, the, the real – one of the real pleasures of the year has been meeting people that the book has resonated with and mm-hmm. like people who are, I have such a soft spot for people who are in that kind of deranged phase of the breakup, like heartbroken people are just so open and uh, soft and receptive and they're, and they're searching for something for themselves, something new for themselves. And, and they're searching for a version of themselves that maybe they haven't seen in a while. And it's so tender and earnest. Mm. Something really gorgeous about meeting someone. Totally. I love, yeah. I love the bit where she emails her mother about, she's like looking at her own hands. <laughs> she's, <laughs> and she's like, these are my mother's hands. And she sends her mom this like really earnest email. <laughs> and then she gets a, a text from her sister the next morning going, mom says, I have to check if you're okay. <laughs> or mom very- says you're having some sort of breakdown. <laughs> 
there are very few things in the book that actually happened to me. And that is one of them. No. My mom is like huge email being like, oh my God, she's going to love this. She's like, I'm not always as expressive as I could be. Yeah. What do moms want? To be thanked, to be seen, to be understood, what we all want. Oh, no. She was so worried. (laughs) Both my sisters checked in the next day. I was like, oh, well, okay. That's good. I'm well, yeah. We tried. (laughs) But but it is that thing of being like a raw emotion. And, you know, you... In the book, the Paul Simon lyric, like, or the Simon and Garfunkel lyric, losing love is like wind to the heart is in there. And it is that, isn't it? Like, you just can't help it. You're so raw. Um, yeah. You know, and, and obviously, depending on how long or how serious the relationship is, that can go on for some time. And it's really only afterwards, isn't it, that you look back and you're like, that was not appropriate. <laughs> yes. I think it is almost impossible to see when you're in it. Yeah. And then. Uh, uh, my policy recently with friends who have been going through breakups, because I feel like there's a lot of breakups happening right now. Yeah, COVID. Right? Yeah. It's like COVID is sort of, I mean, it's not over, it's forever, but it's yeah. like the, the way we knew it, it's kind of past. Mm. And people are starting to break up in quite a big way. Yeah. And I've just said to friends, like, just don't, I mean, unless you're doing something really, really nuts, like, just let yourself be nuts. This yeah. is This is kind of the period for that. Like, you're having big feelings, just just have them. Yeah. But it's, I think it's, it's so hard and you can be, sometimes you have these moments of self-awareness. I think where you're like, I'm putting everyone through hell. Like all of my friends probably hate me. Uh, this is way too much, but also I just absolutely cannot help it. Yes. It's, it's such a struggle. Yeah. There's something very compulsive about it. Mm. Absolutely. Which is sort of like the the thing of the whole book. Yeah. It's just that this woman wishes she was doing better, but you can't speed up the part where you're doing worse. And that is it, isn't it? Because I always feel like that's what I say to people with breakups. It's like, you literally just have to go through this. There's nothing yeah. that anyone can do. You just have to wait it out. Yeah. Um, I think um, uh, one of the things that I particularly loved about the book are the kind of little um, inserts of fantasies um, and also like text exchanges and all those little details are really fun. Um, the fantasies, how many of the fantasies, because I appreciate it's not your book or it's not a book about you, but how many of the fantasies are your fantasies? I mean, I think what I was trying to tap into with the fantasies was like where everyone's mind goes during a breakup. I think the specific expressions of those fantasies you know Maggie imagines singing the perfect song at karaoke in a way that like fixes the breakup in some way or running into her ex-boyfriend with her new boyfriend who's Harry Styles (laughs) that's one of my um, favorites you know even like the fantasy of like walking around after spin class wearing your bra as a shirt and feeling good about that Mm -hmm. those are specific expressions of like Maggie's neuroses but Mm -hmm. I think the core of those fantasies is like what would it feel like to be comfortable in my body what would it feel like to be um, loved by somebody that everyone in the world finds impressive? Mm. What would it feel like to um, have the most painful encounter I can imagine just seeing my ex again, but from a place of power Mm. for whatever reason? So those are sort of universal. And I kind of tried to just think about like, when I was starting to write the book, I knew I wanted to take place over one year. And I just tried to think about like, what are the milestones of that first year? You know, what are the what are the preoccupations of that first year? When do you start to move from revenge fantasy to a, a sort of more sad, your girl is lovely Hubble yeah. kind of <laughs> fantasy? Yeah. Um, 
And I just, you know, it was very fun to find the specifics of those, but it was also very, it was a really interesting exercise to kind of just think what, what would resonate with the most number of people. Yeah. Um, I loved I the, think, yeah. the, sorry to interrupt. I loved the karaoke, um, like describing it as like someone with the kind of harsh and emotion of Nora Ephron and the voice of Adele. <laughs> it's such a perfect combination of what so many of us wish we were. Well, that's the fantasy of karaoke, right? Is that everyone's like, oh my God, I can't believe that this person is so fun and such a good singer or such an amazing showman. Mm. And it's like, nobody is. Yeah. <laughs> Almost We're... nobody is. And it's kind of annoying when people are. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that. Like I I used to be a decent singer. I, like, I haven't sung in years and singing is like a muscle. Like if you don't do it, you aren't good at it. Um. And so karaoke used to be years ago kind of about like showing people that I could sing. Whereas now I can think of nothing worse than even singing a song on my own. Like I, I only choose songs that are like shouting, like TV theme songs are good and that like everyone's going to get involved in because the idea yeah. of actually being perceived as someone who's like even thinking about what they sound like is so horrifying to me. Um, yeah. But it used to be, I used to love that. Oh yeah, there's definitely there was definitely a period where when my friends and I were doing karaoke, it was all it was all like everyone was sort of pretending they were being goofy, but they wanted everyone to be like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And now it's a bit more about like I'm having a, a fun time up here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Song selection is so important, I think, at karaoke <laughs> yeah. to achieve that. Um I also really I found the way there are a couple of couple of things that you wrote about which I found uh, refreshing or like I hadn't seen before. And I guess the first one you touched on it there, you know, about feeling comfortable in your body and how that's kind of, you know, for most of us women, you know, the idea of feeling totally comfortable walking around in, in a sports bra is foreign um, because we've been kind of socialized into thinking that, you know, well, there's an entire industry built on us feeling bad about our bodies. Um, but I loved that kind of very early on in the book you addressed the food stuff head on because so often when we read or see breakup stories it's about someone wasting away to practically nothing and like they can't yes. eat and I was like that has never been that is not an experience I have had or will ever had so what was that choice about yeah I think I had just read like an enormous amount of books where the female protagonist becomes worryingly thin mm. And it is an it's you know it's it does happen. Mm -hmm. It is one of the ways that I think women, uh, you know, a maladaption, a, a way that people cope with stress that's not healthy. And I relate to it. I've definitely been there myself before. Um, but I also, as you say, was like this doesn't feel as universal as like all of these books are making it feel. It feels like a very specific thing. And also. There was something a little uncomfortable to me about reading all these descriptions of these sticky-outy bones and these mm. tiny, frail – it just felt like – I understand what it's doing. It's powerful image-wise. It's like she's wasting away. She's all, she's disappearing. But I was like, I wonder what other ways we could explore that mm. or explore what it's like to be very sad and have a body and – you know, it almost feels like that was sort of the that's sort of the right way to be sad because the right way to be a woman is always still to be the smallest version of a woman possible. Mm -hmm. um, and Maggie is not someone who's really doing anything the right way. So I kind of thought maybe we could look into this other version where, you know, she kind of doesn't eat at all during the day because she's too sad, and then she can't really keep that up and has a burger most nights. Mm. Um, which I think is another 
you know, it's all disordered. It's all disordered eating. Um, mm. um, and I just wanted to look at what other ways that can manifest. Yeah. It's funny. I read a lot of, I was like a voracious reader as a kid and as a teenager. And I read a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of like, like popular women's fiction. And so many memories I have of books that I read include, included such detailed and lengthy descriptions of the women's bodies. Like, and looking back, I have had, you know, horrendous body image issues for my entire life. I'm, you know, I've worked on them pretty intensely over the last 10 years, but I really think that that fed into it. And yeah. and now when I read a book and there isn't that, it's not there and there is no description of the person's body. It's so like, I feel like I can breathe a sigh of relief because why do women's bodies have to be a character in books when men's bodies don't? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I feel like there's like, uh, there's like a thinness obsession in books that isn't really as explored as like we've sort of accepted that there's a problematic obsession with thinness in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and we, it we kind of never comes up. People are just taking all of these books about tiny, tiny, tiny girls, um, uncritically. And there's nothing wrong with writing about thin people. It's just like, why are we writing so much about thin people? And why is it that when characters who are bigger show up, their obstacles or their comedy character or they're they're the bad guy or you know if you look mm -hmm. at like in so many novels I feel like characters that are meant to kind of represent like the excess of capitalism are always these sort of like big kind of slobby businessmen with their bellies hanging over their suits or like if someone's like you know like a, a comedy receptionist who's in the way of the the lead character getting in to see the person that she wants. It's like someone with like a double chin kind of mm. quivering and being a stickler for the rules. And I think it primes readers to overlook or not listen to or not side with characters that are bigger. Yeah. Um, and I just think that it doesn't, I don't understand why we would take such a limiting look at the world. Totally. I was reading the book. Yeah. Last year I was reading a book of someone who I really like like I, I kind of vaguely know them personally, really like them, really like all their work. And I was reading the book and I was enjoying it. And then there was a character who came in who was only there to be a problem and to be like a horrible person. Um, and um, one of the main ways that it was communicated that this character was a problem and was horrible was through the fact that he was in a fat body. Yeah. I don't think people realize that they're doing it, you know? They don't. It's, it's so... The same way I don't think people realize that they're that they're writing these sort of like waif girls yeah. in an idealized way. I think it's it's like it's that thing of like what's water. It's it like, you know, fat phobia is sort of the air that the culture breathes. Yeah. Um and I actually, you know, when I'm getting up on my high horse, I do sometimes think there have been a bunch of criticisms of Maggie as being like really self-involved and like not a very good friend. Um, and I think a lot of these wave girls are behaving the same way, if not worse. And people are a lot more willing to forgive them for similar behaviors. Yeah. Which I find very annoying. Very <laughs> annoying. But also, that's kind of the point. Of course, yeah. she's self-involved and not a good friend because she's in going through it. And that doesn't mean yes, she the will. Novels yeah. <laughs> about how self-involved you become yeah. during a breakup. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. like, I remember after a particularly bad um, kind of breakup season of my life, I remember a friend of mine casually saying to me, oh, we didn't know about her and a couple of other friends. We didn't know how much more we could take. And feeling right. like really kind of hurt by that 
in the moment Mm -hmm. and just being like, oh God, was I really that bad? But also kind of knowing that I probably was because that is just what happens and we all do it. Absolutely. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, uh, I'm, so I mentioned the, the body stuff, but another, another aspect of the book which you wrote about, which I don't think I've ever heard someone describe or, or someone write about in such a way, is that when she has the first encounter with Calvin, her ex's friend, um, mm. and that feeling of meeting a male friend or whatever, you know, whoever you're into, the friend of a previous partner, someone who you've never known outside of that relationship, to suddenly be perceived by them in a different way and to kind of feel that perception and have it be slightly thrilling. Um, like, I think so many of us have experienced that, but I've never heard it acknowledged before. Oh, that's so nice. That kind of thing is exactly what I was looking for, you know, when I was writing out what are the what are the milestones of a breakup? It's mm-hmm. like, what are those little moments other than, the, you know, everyone thinks about the big ones, like your first Christmas apart or whatever. Mm. But I think there are some really impactful kind of small, maybe imperceptible to the outside milestones in getting over a breakup. And like, you know, the first time that you entertain attention from someone else mm. or that you feel good about getting, um, you know, exchanging a flirtatious exchange with someone that's like a, a big milestone if you've been really hung up on somebody else mm. to be like, oh, right, there are other people in the world and I might like some of them. Yeah. They might like me back. Yeah. Um, even if they're kind of the wrong person as in that case. Yeah. But it is that thing of like suddenly feeling like you're visible again. And of course you haven't been invisible, but I think when you're in a relationship and you're really committed to that relationship, you, f- you don't feel perceivable, uh, you know, to people in that kind of romantic or like in terms of attraction, you kind of switch that side of you off. And then when it is switched on again, it is a whole process to kind of readjust and realize that there is a thrill in it and that it's quite exciting and that, you know, there's a whole world, as you say, open to you and who knows what's around the corner mm-hmm. um smothered I just adored um and I realize I'm just basically fangirling here but I just loved it so much I first of all let's be honest we don't get enough romantic comedy anymore that whole industry is just like has been disrespected and we it needs more support and I want more of it in my life but to have it in TV format is actually my favorite I think because really? you get to yeah you just get to spend longer with the characters and like Smothered is, you know, what is it, about three hours long probably in total with all six episodes. So it's not like, substa- well, it's it's actually the same length as many films that are being released these days. Personally, I'm a tight 90 girl. I don't really believe same, that we need three hour films. 
Um, but you know, when it's, when it's in that format of, you know, 30 minute episodes, it's so delightful to kind of get into it with the characters and then, you know, see the development and you just can travel a larger time span. And yeah, I love it. I loved it. Um, how did you find working on it? Um, I also loved it. I mean, it, it was sort of, again, like, you know, I, I, it's so weird to be like, I've had a bad year because I have also genuinely gotten to do things that like. I've wanted to do my whole life and I feel so grateful yeah. and so lucky um, writing a rom- to be able to write a romantic comedy. I feel that has no particular crazy setup. Mm. It's just really classic two people who love each other and there's something in the way. Yeah. And that's it. Um, that kind of stuff doesn't happen that often anymore. And I'm obsessed with when we were pitching it, I was like low concept, high chemistry. Yeah. Chemistry is the only thing that matters. Um, and they and the network, you know, credit to Sky really let us do that. Mm. Um, so that was like a real pleasure because I got to put together a writing room full of some writers I really, really admire um, and just like throw around ideas, you know, spend an afternoon being like, what's the most romantic thing that's ever happened to you? What's the most humiliating thing that's ever happened to you in, in a relationship? Mm. What's your biggest fear? Um, and to synthesize all of that into this like, lovely couple and who are played so perfectly like John and Danielle I think are like amazing yeah they're like young Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks like you just can't not watch them Um, I I love like I wanted to ask you I have so many things I want to ask you but I wanted to ask you about the casting because they are just so perfect I mean I I can't think of people being better in those roles I became obsessed with um John pointing um in big boys yeah like oh my god I've recommended it on this podcast so many times but still please if you have not watched big boys please watch it it's on channel four their streaming service um which has changed its name so many times I have no idea what it is anymore channel four.com I think it's gone back to um but he is just so unbelievably gorgeous like you cannot not fall in love with him in that program but then he somehow manages to be completely gorgeous in a different way in smothered as well I feel like he's a really special talent He's really, yeah, I really think there's kind of nothing he can't do. And Smothered is a real, I think, departure from the roles that he's used to playing. Mm. Um, And he just does such an amazing job. Um, You know, he's really like, we had a, we had an issue when we were casting of finding men who could be both like believable, young, fun, cool guys, you know, to keep up with Sammy or to like yeah. give – like to be a reasonable prospect for Sammy. Yeah. But who also seemed like a dad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like a nice and sweet dad. And John just can can contain so many different sides. Yeah. And um, I think – and Danielle is obviously amazing as well. Um, Like she's got just got so much energy and – Oh, she's so charismatic. It's crazy. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't seen her before, but – immediately fell in love with her um in in the program and I also think when you mentioned there you know you were thinking low concept high chemistry I feel like that gave so much space for comedy and like funny moments and for the other characters to have hilarious like exchanges and dynamics that you wouldn't necessarily have if you were like you know really hell-bent on doing something really complicated with plot and I presume that was intentional Yeah, that was like the whole dream of the show was like, if there's not any need to constantly explain like, oh, they made a bet and and after 20 days, then this is going to happen. And like, we kind of have a little opening with a nod to classic romantic comedies where they make this kooky 
planned to have an affair. Yeah. And then we and then we get rid of it, you know, mm. two-thirds of the way into the first episode because that's not really real life. Mm. And their real life starts and it's immediately complicated by the fact that Tom is a father. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we wanted to give ourselves space to not be explaining the concept all the time, to mm. just get to explore what – you know, what does this relationship look like? What do, what do these friendships look like? Mm. What does a relationship between two women who are co-parenting this child and one of them used to be with him and one of them is now with him, what does that look like? Mm. You know, we really wanted to explore not just the core romantic relationship and how that's affected by parenthood or step-parenthood, but all of these other offshoot relationships. What does it do to your life when suddenly you are sort of partially responsible for a child you didn't know six months ago yeah and I love that like all of the characters seemed really well developed like Ashling B's character Jillian and just for anyone I told you all to watch so I presume you've watched but just in case you haven't watched um Ashling B plays the ex-wife of uh uh John's character sorry what's his Tom Tom, sorry Tom Tom's ex-wife and um she already knows Sammy through work and you so you get to know her initially as this like you know kind of successful charming funny woman um who you really like and in another program I feel like you might then turn on her after it's revealed that she's Tom's ex-wife but that's not what happens it's much more realistic it's like no look it's complicated she needs a minute to process but like you know she's still the same charming woman that she was so why would she suddenly become a villain like I I loved all of that character development it was so important to uh, Emma Lawson, who's the co-creator, and I, mm. that we tell a different kind of story because I think we've all seen the, you know, ex-girlfriend to new girlfriend story where they're in conflict yeah. and they're jealous of each other and they're sniping at each other. They're trying to have one over each other. And we were like, well, what would it look like for these women if the conflict wasn't between the two of them, but like with the the concept of that kind of a relationship. Yeah. So they're both struggling against what they know to be the inherited story of how these two people should interact with each other. And they have complicated feelings. It's not like jealousy in those relationships doesn't exist. No, or, of course. Um, but we just didn't want it to be as straightforward as that. And again, I felt really lucky to have the space to explore like a more realistic version of I'm really interested in stories about people trying their best and yeah. things going wrong anyway, rather than people making consciously bad decisions. Yeah. I oh, think it's maybe like- that's I think that's why I love your work so much because it is it is it's humanity. Like it's it's how we all actually are. And like even even in terms of you know, Tom and Jillian as two people who were married and who have a daughter, you know, it's not this caricature of like fighting and your day and my day. It's two people who are working together to do their best for their daughter, which I think is actually much more common than the kind of dark, you know, acidic divorce stories that we're fed so often. Yeah. And especially as um, co-parenting arrangements like that become more common. Yeah. I think people and and the people who are doing them become more therapized mm. and and just more aware of like what fighting like that does to your kids' mental health, does to your own mental health. Yeah, I think um, people who are trying to make it work and be good to each other and carry on a kind of friendship or at least a very cordial and almost like professional <laughs> co-parenting relationship. Yeah, is more realistic, more common, and like it's very, it's still a very interesting dynamic. It's not like there's no conflict. The conflict no. is just a little bit smaller and a little bit more personal. 
And I think that doesn't make it any less dramatically interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, like it's really brilliant. And I loved all of the, I loved um, Asami's flatmates. I, lo- I like, I was like, oh my gosh, it's self-esteem. Um, uh, like mind blown. Um, I loved no. seeing all, like, and she's so powerful and sexy and cool. It's just, I really, really loved it. I loved every bit of it. Are we going to get more? I don't know. It sort of remains to be seen. That part is weirdly not up to the creative side of things at all. So it Mm. sort of depends if enough people watch it, if enough people talk about enjoying and watching it. Mm. Um, I know it's been like brilliantly reviewed. I've read the reviews. Everybody's singing its praises. So surely that's like a little tick. I hope so. Yeah, it was it was really lovely that that it connected with people. I feel really it was a really nice end to the year, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah, good. So how are you feeling now heading into, I presume hopefully you get a little break over Christmas, do you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then are you straight so. back into something in the new year? Or are you going to have a little bit of headspace? Uh, yeah. So I'm writing a second novel. Great. Um, <laughs> it was like a two book thing. So I have to write a second novel. Okay. I, I mean, I get to write a second yeah, novel. But I'm lucky us. excited about it. Um. <laughs> And uh, we're adapting really good, actually, for television. Oh, that's exciting! So yeah, that's been really that's been really fun. Um, it's every project that I'm sure you know. Every project that you finish, you immediately are like, "Oh God, I wish I could have fixed this." And it's yeah. been really interesting to get to go through the book and be like, "Oh, here are things that I, you know, Maggie is a uh, university uh, professor, mm. an adjunct professor." And um, the book, we don't, we see her like having office hours and speaking to students outside of class, but we never see her in class. Mm. So I got to write a scene for the pilot of Maggie kind of like deep in the throes of breakup feelings, kind of bungling a lecture about Middleton. And Mm. it's probably the first time I've used my master's degree since. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love it. Yeah. So it's, you know, next year looks to be more less full on because it's more about development than it is about production and promotion and promotion in particular is I think the thing that is the most stressful yeah well sorry for making you do that for the last 45 minutes (laughs) no it's like it's weird because I think it's just like when you're working on things when you're in development you get to work with other people and then suddenly it's like you're thrust out on to stage by yourself yeah, holding your sell it. report in your hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been down that road. I, I know I know that feeling. Well, look, I really hope that next year is um, just the best of times and the best of times for you um, and for me also, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but I really can't wait to read what you write next. I can't wait to see Really Good Actually on TV. Um, and I will I will just always be following what you're doing. So thank you so much, Monica Heisey, for giving me your time. And uh, best you. of luck. Thank you so much.